So we'll get started with today's luncheon speech, speeches. We'll be hearing next from two congressmen whose views on health reform are likely to command greater attention in light of the week's developments so far. My name is John Reichardt, and I'm the editor of Congressional Quarterly's Health Beat. It's my pleasure to introduce our two speakers today, Congressman Michael Burgess of Texas and Congressman Jason Altmaier of Pennsylvania, who is on his way. We'll hear from both of them and follow up with a question and answer session. The congressmen are speaking to us today at a time when alternatives to the main plans being written in Congress might seem particularly noteworthy. Ah, yes, the week's developments. On Monday, we heard that a preliminary estimate by the Congressional Budget Office put a trillion-dollar price tag on a Senate help committee plan that would reduce the uninsured population by just 16 million people. And yesterday, we heard rumors that earlier versions of a Senate Finance Committee plan would cover many more of the uninsured, but at a cost of $1.5 trillion or more. Today, we heard from Senate Finance Committee members that a June 23rd markup is likely to be delayed, according to Senator Kerry, until after the 4th of July recess. Some Democratic aides are insisting that what we'll end up with is a plan that costs a trillion dollars over 10 years and covers just about all the uninsured, and that it will be fully paid for with tax increases and provider cuts and will not add to the federal deficit. But I think it's fair to say that there's quite a bit of sticker shock right now about the cost of reform. The policy medicine Democrats are pitching so far seems too pricey to some with too many economic side effects. People wonder, is there a way to cut the dose of policy medicine and get better results, but not to wind up with medicine that is too weak to solve today's healthcare access problems? Our speakers today may help answer that question. Both represent alternative ways of thinking to that of Democratic Party leaders. Dr. Michael Burgess is a leader of the House Republican Task Force on Health Reform, and Jason Altmaier as a member of the New Democrat segment and Blue Dog Coalition in the Democratic Party. Dr. Burgess brings to the debate the perspective of a conservative physician who has quickly made a name for himself in congressional health policy circles. Elected in 2002 from the 26th District in Texas, he represents parts of suburban Dallas and Fort Worth. An OBGYN who estimates he has delivered more than 3,000 babies, Dr. Burgess is an advocate of free market solutions to the problems of the nation's health system. He comes from a family of physicians. His grandfather was an obstetrician who worked at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal. And his father, Harry Tim Burgess, was a general surgeon who moved to the United States to get away from Canada's government-run health system. A member of the House Energy and um, Commerce Health Subcommittee, Dr. Burgess is an advocate of expanding the private sector's role in Medicare and of tightening income eligibility in the state children's health insurance program. He has faulted Democrats for not doing more to restrict the access of illegal immigrants to Medicaid. You have to show your ID before you cash a check at the grocery store, Dr. Burgess once said. Why should we not require someone to show identification before they sign up for this benefit? But Dr. Burgess has sided with Democrats a few times, voting to override a veto by President Bush of legislation blocking Medicare physician payment cuts. And he has come out for regulation, too. In 2009, he obtained House support for a bill that requires insurers to clearly explain to consumers in writing what their policies do not cover. And he has also voted for legislation that requires insurers to treat mental illness the same as other medical conditions. 
He has also championed reform of the Medicare physician payment formula, which each year schedules deep cuts in physician payments that Congress overrides. And as mentioned, he's been a leader in developing a Republican health overhaul plan, which was just unveiled today. Our second speaker, Jason Altmaier, is a member of both the Conservative Democrats' Blue Dog Coalition and the New Democrat Coalition. Elected in 2006 from a five-county district in western Pennsylvania that borders on Pittsburgh, he is a former congressional aide, hospital executive, and lobbyist with a reputation for finding quiet ways to compromise. Congressman Altmaier, who is 41 years of age, co-chairs the New Democrats' health care task force. He has been quoted as saying that he doesn't want to push the envelope too far on health reform and favors taking an evolutionary approach, not a revolutionary approach. Earlier this year, he introduced legislation, H.R. 1776, which would revise the way Medicare pays hospitals to base reimbursement on quality of care. The congressman knows a lot about hospitals. He worked on health care issues from 1991 to 1996 as a staffer for Congressman Pete Peterson of Florida. From 1996 to 1998, he worked for the Federation of American Hospitals, which represents for-profit facilities. And from 19, hello, no, <laughs> sorry. And from 1998 to 2005, he worked as an ex, uh, as an executive for the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, a 20-hospital healthcare system with 45,000 employees. So please welcome our two speakers, and let's get started. We'll begin with Congressman Burgess. Well, thank you, John. I, I really appreciated that great introduction. I could have listened to it for a lot longer. You did a great job in recapitulating my voting record, too, and I was interested in how those, some of those were going to turn out. Um, I know what you're looking at your program right now and, and saying, what in the world? We've got a doctor from Texas here to talk about health care. Who canceled and where did this guy come from? Let me just give you a little bit of background about myself. Uh, I worked last fall as a surrogate in the McCain campaign. It was a good experience for me, a good experience uh, in, uh, in a number of ways. I uh, certainly understood, I understand better now when you're in a presidential campaign, you've got to be very careful about rolling out a very detailed, in fact, an intricately detailed plan, which comes down to almost uh, assigning a value to every living person on, uh, the, in America. The contrast to that was the plan on the other side where we're going to cover all children, and no one goes through what my mama went through, and otherwise it was pretty much undefined. And interesting to me, as we went through the presidential campaign, and then, of course, Senator Baucus had his famous uh, uh, roundtable there at the Library of Congress in late October, produced the white paper, I felt certain that after the results of the election were known, that the Senate Finance Committee, if indeed Chairman Baucus retained his chairmanship, which it looked as if he would, that Chairman Baucus would come forward with a bill, which would be the unified Democratic Senate bill, which would then by default be the bill that uh, made its way through the House of Representatives. So it was a lot of interest that I watched what was going on late October. And you can imagine my surprise as we worked our ways then past the days past the election, through the holidays, and no bill was 
coming out. We got into the inauguration and no bill was occurring. Uh, Senator Daschle then, of course, had to withdraw as a nominee for Health and Human Services, and things really went quiet then almost until the beginning of last month when Senator Baucus and Senator Kennedy sent a letter to the president saying, we will indeed have a bill for you by the middle of June, um, essentially right now. And, of course, we see all the activity that uh, Mr. Reichard just uh, just uh, alluded to. During that time, my side got a great deal of criticism for not having a bill and not, you know, what do you stand for? If you're not for something, then you're for nothing, and we need to know where the Republicans are. But as I would point out to people, there was no Democratic bill at that point either, and certainly no Democratic bill on the House side. Now, we are all anticipating a bill coming forward from the chairman, of the, the respective chairman of the three committees of jurisdiction on the House. That's Energy and Commerce, my committee, Ways and Means, and Education and workforce, and that is likely going to happen the end of this week, so I have been told. You know, I did, a, I did one of these events with Mr. Reichardt earlier, uh, well, two weeks ago, with the uh, Nancy Ann Mintaparl from the White House, and she emphasized that in Washington it is important not to follow rumor and innuendo, because if you follow rumor and innuendo, you'll likely be misled. When it came my turn, I said, I'm on the minority. I sit at the kids' table on the Energy and Commerce Committee. If it wasn't for rumor and innuendo, I would have no information at all. So I like rumor and innuendo, and I can see a value in it. Well, the rumor and innuendo now is that the, the three Democratic chairmen, Mr. Miller, Mr. Waxman, and uh, uh, Mr. Rangel, thank you, will have, uh, will have a bill uh, available for us at the end of this week. The Republicans, the three committees of jurisdiction, will as well. And that bill has been uh, a work in progress. It's been uh, perhaps a little bit more difficult because not having some of the resources at Legislative Council and CBO. But there is a bill, and we will t- I will touch upon a few points of that, that, uh, of that bill that will be likely available for inspection, again, about the same time that the Committee, uh, committee Democratic Chairman bill will be available as, as well. But... You know, for me, as someone who practiced medicine, when I look at the, the, the problems that beset us, affordability rises to the top for me. Uh, you know, I had a medical professor one time that said it's all about affordability, access, and quality, and unfortunately in this country we can only solve two at a time. Well, I would never want to pick the, the one that uh, – I would never want to pick the top two and then the one that I would identify as being unimportant. So I'll just pick affordability and, and let the other assumptions about the other two uh, stand where they are. Affordability is key. I will stipulate that quality in the American system – I mean, yes, there are some areas where there's uneven quality. Yes, there are some areas where utilization could be improved. But by and large, the quality can be, in my opinion, can be stipulated in the American system. Um, affordability becomes an issue that then affects access, and we see that, practicing physicians see that uh, every day of the week. Certainly the number of uninsured, and whether we want to argue about the accuracy of the number that's always talked about, and whether in some of those specific demographic groups there are target populations where we could achieve improvement, regardless, the number of uninsured in this country is a problem that weighs heavy on the minds of many of us, and no one can seriously undertake any, any meaningful effort at reform that does not uh, strive to bring into coverage a number of people who are now currently uninsured. Mr. Reichert mentioned the problem that we have in this country, particularly in my state, which has a high number of uninsured, and we do have a, lot, a significant number of people who are in the country without the benefit of a Social Security number. Now, regardless of where you are on the immigration reform debate, 
I do submit, and I bring up in committee all the time, that unless we, as a federal government, solve that problem, it is going to be very, very difficult for us to come to meaningful conclusions on what we are going to do as far as health care in general. Because whether you're a, someone who is for increased border security or someone who is for open borders, until we deal with that and come to a conclusion, we cannot ask our doctors and nurses in the emergency room to play immigration officer for us, particularly when they have a provider mandate that says you will provide care and stabilization within 30 minutes of that patient hitting the door. And that is something that we often forget that that's been around for what? 10, 15, 20 years' time, the EMTALA provisions require that every, that every patient that hits the emergency room is entitled to a physician evaluation and, and, and a stabilization before that patient is transferred, and certainly that evaluation has to occur within the first 30 minutes of the, of the patient arriving. Quality, uh, you know, I will tell you I do have some difficulty when I hear people talk about pay for performance. I just think back on the day that I might drive to, uh, to typically drive to my medical office. I was never behind the wheel of my car saying, well, I sure hope I can be average today. No, you go to work to do your best work. That's what doctors are all about. That's what being a doctor is all about. You don't go into medicine hoping to do a, a half-hearted attempt at taking care of people. You go to do your best work. So I do come at this from the from the position that doctors do tend to be goal-directed. You give them the right incentives and the right tools to make that work, and that is indeed what, the, what they will do. Doctors are not stupid, and if you give them the wrong incentives and the wrong direction, then they may, uh, they may go into a direction that you don't, do not, uh, don't care for. And then we come down to the sentinel, the sentinel problem that is before us, Republican or Democrat, President, member of the Senate, or member of the House, and we always put it down to these two premises, which are almost mutually ex- exclusive. We hear it talked about all the time. Healthcare system in this country is badly broken. In fact, the president said it during the, uh, the White House event that he had in, in March of this year. The only thing I will not accept is the status quo. And then the other premise is that 65% of the people in this country receive their insurance typically through an employer-sponsored insurance, but some through private uh, uh, individual insurance policies, and 80% of those individuals like what they have. So remembering the lessons of Hillary Clinton, the second premise is, if you like what you have, you can keep it. So put those two side by side. We'll not accept the status quo, but if you like what you have, you can keep it. And therein defines the difficulty that members of Congress, a member of the Senate, indeed the White House, find themselves in. How do you restructure the whole system without disrupting things for that rather significant section of the population who tend to vote? How do you do that without disrupting things for that significant portion of the, uh, of the population? And therein is the challenge. Let me just talk about a couple of the points that uh, were talked about this morning at the press conference. Um, about the Republican plan that has been uh, long in uh, long in evolution, long in gestation. One of the things we don't want to do, and, and I believe this very strongly, in a free society, mandates are an anathema. In my home state of Texas, we have a mandate for automobile insurance. And in fact, in the city of Dallas, if you're stopped for an automobile violation and you cannot provide proof of insurance, your car is towed away. Well, you can imagine the application to health care. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, where are you going to take that person that you've now impounded because they came to your emergency room without health insurance? That's a, a, a graphic that I don't think anyone wants to, wants to see. Mandate are difficult in a free society. The IRS, there is no more significant mandate. People know that they've got to pay their taxes. They know if they don't pay their taxes, there is a severe and certain penalty that awaits. 
And what is the compliance rate with the IRS? Well, it's about 85%. About 15% of people decide that they uh, don't need to pay their taxes and they're not going to conform. In this country, it's voluntary insurance. 85% of the people are insured and 15% are uninsured. There seems to be a parallel there. Looking at it from a, a different perspective, the... Uh, the Medicare Part D program, which had its faults on rollout, I will concede and stipulate, but at the same time, now 90% of America's seniors have some type of credible drug coverage, and for all of the problems that beset Medicare Part D as, it, as the rollout occurred, 90% have coverage, and in excess of 90% are satisfied with that coverage. What if instead of mandates, we looked at building programs that people actually wanted and were actually useful to people and used that as our guidepost rather than simply saying we are the federal government, we can require you to have insurance, and we will do so. Now, insurance companies that come before the committee are extremely anxious for us to do a mandate. No, no small surprise, because then they would get to sell a lot more of their product. But without significant controls, and controls that I would not necessarily endorse, mandates would provide insurance companies with an increased amount of cash, but would not necessarily achieve the desired effect of reducing the number of, of uninsured. The other thing that comes up is the employer option, the, the public plan, the government-sponsored insurance. And interestingly enough, if my information is correct, my uh, I was an alternate delegate to the AMA many years ago. My understanding is the House of Delegates today voted on a resolution that suggested that we could do this job without a public option plan. And I was grateful to see that even though the leadership of the AMA may have had some hesitancy about about avoiding a public plan, the, the House of Delegates, the rank and file, had no difficulty in saying this is something that we do not want, we do not need. Now, again, what other options are there? We do discriminate people against people in the tax code who want to have their own insurance or who do not, do not get employer-sponsored insurance. I think that needs to end. The exact parameters of that, does it more closely resemble the Ryan plan or is it just simply a tax deduction with then a tax credit for someone who does not receive employer-sponsored insurance and is below a certain income level? Level. I think those are those are discussions we can have, and and we can we can come to an agreement on that. But certainly, the dis discrepancy in the tax code is one of the things that has to be addressed. Pre-existing conditions. We heard we heard heartfelt testimony in our committee yesterday about people who were excluded after the fact. They had individual insurance policies and then were dropped retrospectively by their insurance companies because of pre-existing conditions. Can we not? agree that we can do a better job for people who are of conditions that, where they have medical fragility, take care of those individuals in a sensible way, and not turn the whole system on its head, simply simply to be certain that we don't deal poorly with that subset of individuals. And the answer is, I think the, I, I think the answer is yes. Certainly high-risk pools in 34 states are beginning to make some inroads. My home state of Texas, not a good example, but there are best practices and examples of best practices from other states, or what about giving states the opportunity, the option for reinsurance for some of those for coverage of some of those conditions? Yes, you require a, a certain subsidy from the insurance company itself, perhaps by capping premiums at 100, 110, 150 percent of, of usual and customary. Perhaps we have a federal subsidy. Perhaps we have a state subsidy applied on a sliding scale. We can argue about the parameters of that, but surely we can agree we can take care of that segment of the society without creating Medicare for all or expanding the Medicaid system throughout all sectors of, of, uh, of, of, the, of society. Those are the things where I think uh, reform needs to be centered. Certainly insurance reform on the broad scale. I've never understood why someone in Maryland cannot buy a policy across the street in Washington, D.C. that may meet their needs better and be of lower cost. Surely we can address that. Realtors come to me, dentists, 
chambers of commerce, why cannot we band together and use our purchasing power across state lines to buy insurance? I frankly do not understand. We have the ability in this country for large multi-state corporations to purchase their insurance without regards to state mandates. Giving that same power to the little guy, to me, makes a lot of sense, and I would like to see us do that. I use the analogy during the presidential debates that if a player, a football player from Washington, D.C., was traded to the Dallas Cowboys, start of the fall I said it was an upgrade, latter part maybe not so much, but if a player is traded from Washington, D.C. to the Dallas Cowboys, their insurance goes with them. They don't have to start all over again in a new location. But if a fan follows their favorite player from Washington, D.C. back to Dallas, Texas, they have to start all over again. That's fundamentally unfair, and that's within our power to change. There are many more aspects of this that we could go into in greater detail during the Q&A, but I see my time is up. I'm going to turn it back there. I thank Cato so much for allowing me the opportunity to come here and speak with you today. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Burgess. Uh, Congressman Altmaier. First of all, thank you for having me. I came here for, I suspect, the same reason that you invited me, which was to engage in dialogue and talk about what is certainly one of, if not the most important issue that we're going to face this summer in Congress, our health care system. And I don't disagree with very much of what Dr. Burgess says. He's one of the good guys in Congress. Uh, there are very few, if any, who know more about health care than he does, and uh, he and I have had discussions about it, and we've certainly heard each other talk many times before. So it's an honor to be here and share the stage with uh, Dr. Burgess as well. I want to leave as much time for Q&A as possible. This is a subject, I'm sure, like many in this room, that uh, I could certainly give you a monologue on for a long time. Let me just outline where I'm coming from personally, some of the groups I'm involved in in Congress, maybe a little bit about where I think the debate's going, and then we'll just we'll open it up. I think that's more helpful for this, this discussion. I start from the premise that we have the best health care system anywhere in the world, and it's not even close. We have the best health care system anywhere in the world. I start from that. Now, are there problems? Yes. Are there things we can improve? Yes. The most important thing it costs way too much, and the cost increases are unsustainable. They're unsustainable for the government, but just as important, they're unsustainable for every business, every family, and every individual in this country. This is an issue that touches everybody. And when you talk about the three legs of the stool, as Dr. Burgess did, access, quality, and cost, in large part, the access issue drives the cost issue in a variety of ways. And I know many of the people in this room, you understand the cost shift that takes place. When you show up at the emergency room and you don't have insurance, you get covered or you get your medical care. They just shift the cost to somebody else. You and I, who have health insurance, are paying for the 47 million Americans to show up and get treatment. And they're showing up in the least cost-effective setting, the least efficient, and in many ways, not the best setting where they can get the best quality. And they're waiting longer to get their treatment, so you're not doing the prevention and wellness that you should be doing. We could talk more about that, but I know you get that. Also, as part of it, less than half of small businesses in this country are able to afford health care for their employees right now. Less than half. The reason for that is because they can't afford it. Now, they can't afford it for a variety of reasons, but those employees now are going without health care unless they live in a family where the spouse has health care. 
but we need to change that. And the way that you don't change that is by increasing costs for small businesses. So when we hear the discussion of an employer mandate in conjunction with a possible public option of some sort, and you have employers that are doing the right thing and are offering health care to their insurers, it's almost impossible to set an employer mandate at a level that's not going to do one of two things. It's not going to further drive up costs for small businesses because they want to offer it now. Increasing their cost isn't going to do anything. If you say you, have, you either have to pay the equivalent of a tax into the system or you have to offer health care. Well, they want to offer health care. They wish they could offer health care. Paying a tax into the system isn't going to help their bottom line. You know all of that. But if you're the employer who's offering health care and they say to you, you can either, there's this public plan that exists, and you can either pay a tax for those that can't afford health care or you can pay for your employees' health care coverage, a lot of employers are going to say, you know what, it's a lot better for me if I just pay into the system. So all of you folks who work for me, you go into that public plan and you find your health care that way and I'll just pay the tax into the system. So it's very difficult to set that level. And when you talk about quality, our medical innovation, our technology, our research, and certainly our quality at the high end exceeds anything available anywhere in the world. I'm sure we can all agree on that. It's why people from all over the world come to America for their transplants and for their high-end quality care because we do it better than anybody else. And we cannot afford to lose that. We have to preserve what works in our current system and fix what's not working as well as we would like. And primarily, that's cost-driven. All of the other issues that we're talking about affect the increase in costs. We're on an unsustainable path right now. So what do we do? And we can leave some of this for the Q&A again, because uh, any, anything you want to talk about, we can certainly talk about. Now, in Congress, we, I'm a member of the New Democrat Coalition, which is the pro-business centrist Democrats. I know you wanted me to touch on that. I'm the co-chair of their health care task force. We think there's a centrist approach. I'm also a member of the Blue Dogs, who are very involved in this debate and putting together a model that's not at the extremes, that, that's in the middle, because I think that's where most of us are. I don't want to speak for Dr. Burgess, but I think most of the Republicans who are active on health care and are engaged and have an expertise in this issue, most of the Democrats, same way, people who've been working on this for a long time, we want to come to a solution that works for everybody, that's bipartisan. And look, there's political reasons why it has to be bipartisan. We all know that. But you end up with a better outcome. That's what's more important about having every, everyone participate in the debate, having everyone that has good ideas be brought to the table. And I think that's the stage that we're in right now. What's happened with the cost estimate coming out? We started this debate by saying, here's the wish list. Here's everything that everyone would like to see in the bill. And that was in February. Well, now we're in June going into July and we have a trillion and a half, at least, price tag, and we have to pay for it. Now these options don't look quite as attractive as they did before. So this is the perfect time to be having this discussion, but this is a very crucial time for this debate in Congress because we're at the point where we have to make difficult decisions, politically difficult, 
but more importantly, difficult for having a good outcome on policy, making sure that we end up with a bill that's workable and that's affordable. And that's what I want to talk about today. So, I, again, I could talk a lot longer, but we're both going to be here, so let's just leave it for the Q&A. And I really do appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. I want to thank our speakers. And um, I, I guess I'll start the questioning off, uh, but uh, hope that the audience will take it from there. I, I'm sure we will have a lot of questions. Um, I wondered, uh, Congressman Burgess, you talked about uh, the Republican plan perhaps having some sort of federal state subsidy uh, uh, for individuals, I guess, to buy coverage. I'm wondering, um, you know, whether that, in fact, will be part of the, the Republican bill uh, and, and how that might be paid for. Well, there's two, two aspects of that, one, uh, one of which would be uh, – and again, the, the precise parameters of this have not been set simply because it has been difficult to get scoring data, and some of these may well be in flux depending upon scoring answers that come back. But the parameters that have been put forth is, again, certainly you want to give people the opportunity to have the same break for individual insurance policies that someone gets when they have get their insurance through their employer. What if someone does not quite have the the income that will allow that purchase of that insurance? That can be subsidized, and the exact cost for that is probably. And I shouldn't quote numbers because I really don't. I don't know what the moving parts are, and where the payment for that will come from is likely to be in. Uh, well. The thing that I've heard talked about most often is if we open up Anwar for drilling, there's uh, several hundred billion dollars that we'll get for that, and we can pay for a lot of health care with, uh, with opening up Anwar. I don't know that I can identify for you the precise location of getting, of getting that funding. But clearly it will have to come from somewhere. And like Mr. Altamar, I, I believe that as to the extent that it can be, this bill should be, this bill should be paid for, whether it's a Republican or Democratic bill. On the issue of the subsidy for people who have pre-existing conditions. And again, we're not talking about nearly the numbers in population, but we are talking about a very significant population. Right now, we have, again, I know the state of Texas has a high-risk pool. It's good policy, but it's way underfunded. And if we provide, and we do provide some federal subsidy for that today, but likely not nearly enough. So if we increase the amount of federal subsidy, we ask for a state share of that, and we ask the insurance companies, too, whether this is, whether this is a, a, an individual assessment on people selling insurance in that state, uh, whether this is a capping of premium. Again, those are moving parts that are yet to be defined. But again, I would suggest that there is a way to provide coverage for that segment of the population without turning the entire system on its head. Now, I also recognize that I have not provided you a precise answer to your question, but right now those are moving parts that are in evolution. I think the certainly when the scoring on the Republican plan comes out, it will be very competitive with anything else that has been disclosed and then like anything else the pay fors are going to be are going to be the uh, the, the difficulty that's encountered uh, just as a, as a follow-up you mentioned that there are uh, you know varying estimates of, of the uninsured and I just wonder what your thoughts are on the number of uninsured that we really need to worry about and and you know how many of those people do you suppose the Republican plan would cover well I said I wasn't going to do the breakdown but if you actually look at the different demographic groups contained within that 
figure, whatever whatever top number you want to give, certainly there exist within that about 10% of people who are between uh, the time that they've concluded their education, whether it be high school and college, and between that and the time they have started their career into a job that provides uh, employer-sponsored insurance. So 10% of the population who are young, healthy, when they do get into difficulty with medical problems, they tend to be dramatic and expensive, but they are relatively easy to cover. Um, One reform that really wouldn't require a lot of additional expenditure at the federal level would be to allow uh, those individuals to be continued on their parents' insurance until age 25. I know my good friend Merrill Matthews refers to that as the slacker mandate, but there is a place to be, there is a a rationale that would say for a temporary uh, lodging in 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 an insurance program, this makes a lot of sense. The parents are obviously going to continue their insurance and the cost of continuing that child on that family policy is relatively modest, and if there needs to be uh, any type of federal advance for that, it would be relatively modest, and you would get some significant coverage numbers, and that would uh, that that all in all would be a good thing. What about the people who have the availability of employer-sponsored insurance and just don't bother to sign up? What if you approached it differently? And, and many people have talked about this with, uh, with 401ks. Instead of opting in, you have to opt out. That is, the 401k will be there for you and, the, and the, the money will be withdrawn and placed into the 401k. But if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. And you just simply opt out and, and the money is not withdrawn. What if we did that with health insurance? And that trip down to uh, HR after hiring on at a, at a new place of employment Yes, here's the health insurance that's provided by uh, by the employer. And if you don't want it, please tell us, and, and we won't subtract for your paycheck. Otherwise, you don't have to worry about it. You're already signed up, and it's ready to go. So automatic enrollment will capture a number of those people who actually have insurance, av- employer-sponsored insurance available to them, but do not uh, just choose not to sign up. Streamlining the enrollment processes for Medicare and Medicaid along the lines of the language from Barton Deal and the S-CHIP alternative that was offered in December of 2007, it's estimated there are between 10 and 20 percent of the uninsured that have the availability of S-CHIP or Medicaid but have just not bothered to go through the, the paperwork of signing up. If you streamline that process and bring these people into the programs that were designed for them in the first place, we could remove them from, from the roles of the uninsured. I already uh, acknowledge that there is a significant problem with people in, hos- in uh, the country without benefit from of Social Security numbers. Perhaps there needs to be a different system in place for that, or perhaps we need to come to a conclusion as a federal government about what we are going to do about that and not ask our health care system to just try to make do, do with that segment of the population as best they can. And then finally, there are the individuals who earn enough money where you would think a purchase of a moderately priced insurance policy would be available to them, and certainly that is a significant number. I, again, would would stipulate if they're not found in uh, automatic enrollment with employer-sponsored insurance, they may be able to be encouraged to purchase a policy because now they will be able to purchase that with pre-tax dollars rather than after-tax dollars, and they are no longer discriminated against. I long for the day when people could have a longitudinal relationship with their insurance company. You start with an insurance company just out of college, perhaps a high-deductible policy that is very modestly priced. As your needs change and your family changes, that coverage changes with you within the parameters of that company. Give that company an interest in your health long-term so that they will be there to encourage you with things like wellness, smoking cessation, alcohol control, or whatever that uh, w- whatever you would wish. I have found uh, using an HSA formula with a 
a large insurance company whose name begins and ends with A, that they have done a great job with me in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Plan. I am, in fact, costing the federal government half of what I cost them two years ago with a high-option PPO by selecting an HSA-type plan. These are the types of programs we were, you know, when President Obama said he wants to find out what works, well, why look at an indemnity high option PPO that's growing at 7.5% a year, Medicare and Medicaid growing at 74 to 7.8% a year, when you've got a consumer-directed health plan that's growing at 2.5% a year? Why not focus on that type of plan for this segment of the uninsured who actually have the wherewithal to purchase a policy, keep it low cost so that it's within their reach, allow them to pay it with pre-tax dollars, and again, allow that development of a longitudinal relationship with an insurance company that I think makes much more sense than some of the things we're doing today. We uh, invite the audience to ask uh, questions. Uh, maybe if we could start with one for Congressman Altmaier, um, uh, gentleman with the dark suit coat, yes? You, you, yeah, you. <laughs> and please introduce yourself if you would. Uh, David Hogberg with um, Investors Business Daily. Uh, this is for both of you. Um, in the last few days, there's been a lot of talk about funding health care reform with a value-added tax. Um, do could, could both of you speak to the possibility of that happening and also tell us whether or not you, you support that option? I would say the possibility of that happening is remote, but yes, it's possible. Uh, if you look at the list of options that the Ways and Means Committee came up with, as I said, uh, I don't see anything on there that is realistic or, or likely to happen, but you have to come up with revenue somehow. Personally, uh, I, I want to keep any payment with regard to health care, any offset that's necessary in the health care arena. I'm very, very, very unlikely to support anything that comes from outside of health care, especially that's going to be a continuing new tax. Uh, I don't think that's something I could support. No, no, and no. Uh, gentleman in the back with the white shirt. Uh, Dave Adams. Uh, I'm a gastroenterologist from the Wyoming Liberty Group. Uh, couple of questions, uh, somewhat provocative for both speakers. Um, we've talked an awful lot about the funding of expanded medical services when we really don't have enough services for what we're doing now. Um, for the past 30 years, we've always debated about uh, malpractice coverage, malpractice insurance, and the cost of preventative or defensive medicine to uh, our uh, people. Is there going to be any tort reform involved in health care uh, reform currently? And if not, why not? Because it's a structural feature of our cost for health care now. And question number two for both of you is, at what point is Congress going to subscribe to the health care reform that they legislate? Thank you. I, uh, I'll answer quickly because I think the first question is, is a softball for Dr. Burgess. Now let him hit it out of the park. Uh, I, I think most people would agree there is a problem with malpractice insurance. There's no question. Pennsylvania as a state, we're right on the tip of the spear on that issue. We're losing physicians. I think that there needs to be some way to resolve that situation. Are caps going to be the answer? I think that's 
the, what you're driving at there. As the president said uh, the other day, that's certainly one of the options that people advocate. That's not the only thing we could do. You can do reforms on the insurance side that have worked well in some other states, like California. California is not a model for the rest of the country in a lot of ways, but on the insurance reforms that they did with regard to malpractice, they have had an effect in, in stemming the tide. So I think there's a role in making sure that physicians don't have to do the defensive medicine, which does add to the cost. I, I don't know that caps are going to be the answer to that. On the second issue, I think the whole point of this is to give everyone in America the same choices that members of Congress have. That's the end result that we have we, or that we want. We are in the Federal Employees Health Benefit Plan if you choose to participate. And we want to give everyone that option, that menu. The, the, the exchange that you hear about, this health exchange, is supposed to be the equivalent of what the Federal Employees Health Benefit Plan is for every federal employee, including members of Congress. Uh, sorry, go Let ahead. Let me just a couple of things. On the workforce issues, and, and I have been, uh, that is something that concerned me greatly for a number of years. And there have been three bills that I've worked on through several Congresses, and the bulk of those will be included into the Republican plan when it when it rolls out. One is dealing with the updating the old health profession scholarships loans, one dealing with increasing the number of uh, high-need specialties and primary care residencies in, in, in high-need areas, and then finally dealing with the sustainable growth rate formula, which is probably one of the onerous burdens on what I like to refer as, to as the mature physician and encourages us to leave practice early. The other aspect of liability, the states being the great laboratories that the Founding Fathers suggested, yes, California uh, did some interesting things back in 1975 with the Medical Injury Compensation Reform Act, Texas patterned a, a reform after that in 2003, and we in fact passed a constitutional amendment, so we did not need to await a court challenge, and that has been extremely effective in Texas. It is a cap, it's a trifurcated cap, $250,000 cap on non-economic damages for the doctor, same amount on the hospital, a $250,000 cap on a second hospital or nursing home if one is involved. And that has, again, been extremely effective in holding down premiums, been extremely effective in encouraging insurers to come back to the state. We were down to two, and we're now near 20 again, and they came back to the state without an increase in their premiums. The final thing, and, and this is something that I have uh, that I have dealt with a lot over the years, I tried a year ago in the previous Congress I introduced a bill that would remove members of Congress from the Federal Employee Health Benefit Plan and give us a $3,000 voucher, figuring that if we became uninsured, it would make us more creative about the solutions that we thought of for people who were uninsured. I got no co-sponsors. Um, <laughs> I was going to offer a bill this Congress, and I actually ran afoul of some of my conservative brethren – but this was a bill to allow members of not to allow members of Congress, but require members of Congress members of Congress to be covered on Medicaid. But in doing so, I created a new entitlement for that 535 member group. So the Republican Study Committee was anxious about me introducing that bill. What I may do is introduce that as a an amendment on on the health care bill that comes through our committee. I have offered Medicaid as an alternative to the health insurance enjoyed by every panel member who's come before us and testified. And we've got a week's worth of hearings next week, and I'll probably have an opportunity to do that again with a number of people. I've, I've had no takers. So when we talk about a, uh, creating a public option 
abortion plan that may look like Medicaid, and no one wants it, even members of Congress, it makes it, in my mind, a hard sell to, to go out and, and take that to the American people. But you're exactly right. If, if Congress were, were made to behave by the same rules that it's creating for other people, again, perhaps we'd be more sensitive or more creative in, in the outcome. I would be perfectly okay with every member of Congress being on a high-deductible uh, health savings account. We'd save the federal government a ton of money, um, and, and people would, in fact, be saving for their, for their, uh, for their health care needs in the future as well. So I, I find that to be an ent- a very useful structure. I had an old medical savings account in Kennedy Kassebaum in 1996-1997. Uh, I liked it. I liked the fact that I had so much autonomy. I didn't have to call one in California before I had a lab test done. I just wrote the check out of my HSA. Um, and I, I think, you know, when people look at that, yes, when people look at that, they like it. I'm getting the time out. Um, I, I, let's let's have one more question. I, I've got a sign to, uh, to to wind up, but please go ahead. I'm Bill Shaker with the American Council for Healthcare Reform. I would like to be self-insured. I had some uh, uh, some blood work done, drawn earlier this year, and uh, the bill for this blood work was a little over nine hundred dollars from the hospital. Uh, I had just recently signed up for Medicare, and uh, and I uh, before that I'd had a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. The uh, the hospital has a contract with uh, Care First Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, that discounts the bills significantly, which I, I believe is pretty close to what the bills get discounted for for Medicare. And uh, in this, in my instance, the bill was about $900. Well, Medicare paid a little over $100 of it, and they billed me my co- as, a, as a co-payment about 50 Well, I asked the hospital, I said, well, if I were self-insured, which I would like to be, if I were self-insured, how much would I have to pay? You'd have to pay the whole bill, about $900. I, I'm asking, is there, do you all see, envision any sort of a legislative remedy for that, uh, possibly requiring for the self-insured to be given the same, the same uh, rate that uh, the contracts are with the uh, with Medicare, or, or or do you think that is is uh, is too uh, too draconian? Um, the the last word you used is probably the most accurate, and I'm not entirely certain about this, but as I recall from at least in Texas, that you had to be careful about offering even things like professional courtesy because then contractually you may be violating something with someone else. But I do agree with you. Again, if somebody's had a medical savings account for a long time, you walk into a hospital or clinic and, and oftentimes you're assessed sticker price. Now, part of being an informed consumer is knowing ahead of time what some of those discounted prices are and and negotiating that price up, up front. Now, you can't do that in the emergency room in the middle of the night with appendicitis, and I, and I understand that. But there are places where, where that will fit and where that can occur. We have looked at a number of those things on our side in energy and commerce to see if there are not ways to keep people out of that sticker shock phenomenon that you described. I, I had it happen to myself one time. Uh, I was supposed to get blood drawn for a family member in my office. I didn't do it at the appropriate time, and I had taken to the hospital and then got a bill for, I think it was in excess of $1,000 for relatively routine work. And uh, uh, again, sticker shock to say the least, and I caught a lot of grief at home for having not done things the way I was instructed to do them, and hence my, my freelancing cost me a, a great deal more, more money. But it's not right, and, and you do have the ability to negotiate that, and, and people do forget that. 
I know in my community back in, in, in Texas, my hospital, which was an HCA hospital, charged full sticker price for someone who wanted to come in and pay cash for a relatively minor operation. But another HCA hospital 30 miles away down in Dallas actually had a, 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 a price that would, you know, the whole package could be purchased for this amount, which was quite reasonable. Several of the ambulatory surgery centers that were coming online then offered similar, offered similar such packages. One of the things that we have talked about doing is if you can get a degree of transparency that puts a lot of this information out there where a patient can access that information and actually make those informed choices, no, don't go to the hospital in Louisville because they charge you sticker price for everything, but you go down to Medical City in Dallas and they're going to take care of you for a much more reasonable price. That then would get the attention of the hospital in Louisville and they would quickly change their behavior, I believe. Congressman Altmaier, you want to comment? Thank you. Uh, there's a lot of things in the insurance market that don't work. Uh, without question, pre-existing conditions and redlining based on health status and lifetime caps. But one of the things that does work in the insurance system is the volume discounts, basically. You can negotiate in the way that Dr. Burgess described that the individual doesn't have the ability to do. So your question is, should you have the ability to get that? Well, I think the way that we make that happen is what we talked about earlier, by making sure everybody is covered. Now, if you can, we can have a component in there to say if you're self-insured and you can prove it and you have enough money, maybe that's going to be part of the solution if you can prove you have the financial wherewithal to cover yourself if something happens to you. But the larger issue is I think we're better off if everyone is covered in the same risk pool because, as I talked about earlier, we're already paying for the people who don't have health insurance. The majority of the people who don't have health insurance are not in the situation that you described. They're young and healthy. They're people who don't have health problems now. Some of them, many of them, have the ability to pay for health care. They have the money. They could do it if they want. They just choose not to. The problem with that is that drives up the cost for everyone that does have insurance because it's the risk pool is smaller. We want to drive the younger and healthier people into the system somehow. And as a part of that, you would be involved in that as well. Now, again, we could structure this in a way that people who just fundamentally don't want to be a part of that uh, want to be self-insured if they can say they have the ability to do that. Yeah, you can, but you're probably not going to be able to get the same discount that Humana is able to negotiate or United or somebody else. Uh, I can't think of a way around that. If If you're making a conscious decision to go it alone, then you're probably not going to be able to get the same group discount that the other ones get. Thank you. And I think we're going to have to stop there, keep uh, our conference on schedule. And uh, please join me in a round of applause for our speakers. <laughs>